Tonight's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it is that time of year again. Kids are going back to school. Uh, and for many college freshmen, uh, they're going to actually experience uh, a whole new level of freedom uh, that they have never experienced before. Um, many of us have been there at that point, uh, at that point, at one point or another in our lives. Uh, and we can remember, I think, what it was like, right, to have this first experience of living away from home, and all of a sudden, these decisions uh, that come upon you that you've never had to actually deal with before. Uh, and one of the most consistent decisions that we have to make throughout the day uh, is what to eat, right? And for the first time, for many people, uh, many students, there's no parents placing a balanced meal in front of them. And for the first time in their lives, they're stocking their own mini fridges. Um, and there's a reason why the phrase freshman 15 is like a thing. Um, because for many of us, I'm sure we can admit, it was, it's an interesting time to have to feed yourself for the first time. Now, eventually, though, what happens is over time, you, re you begin to learn uh, that you cannot treat your body like a dumpster uh, and just kind of throw anything into it that you might want to, but rather, over time, you begin to realize that you need to make healthy choices because maturity is the consistent application of healthy choices by living within certain boundaries, that although you have the freedom to choose otherwise, maturity is deciding to do that which is best for you, that which nourishes you most. Now in this passage, uh, Paul gives us uh, a bit of a take on spiritual maturity. Uh, and we're going to see how he does that by uh, looking at three things tonight. First, we're going to take a look at the life of maturity that Paul lays out here. Uh, second, we're going to look at uh, the life of destruction that Paul lays out. And then finally, we'll look at the hope of life to come. So life of maturity, life of destruction, uh, the hope of life to come first. Life of maturity. Uh, so uh, throughout the book of Philippians, if you've been with us uh, over the last several weeks, you'll know that we've been in a series uh, in Philippians. Uh, and up until this point, Paul has led us down several paths so far. 
So first in chapter 2, what we saw is that he essentially presents himself, uh, uh, Timothy, Epaphroditus, as those that we are to emulate. Essentially, he says that um, there are good and right ways to live. Here are some people that are living that way. You should now go and model your life after them. And then in chapter 3, which we looked at, we began looking at last week, um, he begins to show us that while we ought to strive to live towards certain things, uh, he rejects the idea that there is, uh, the, he directs the, the notion that there is this self-justification that we can't accomplish, uh, that there's no way for us to find ultimate value and salvation in our accomplishments. And all of that now leads us to verse 16, where he says this. He says that we ought to live up to what we have already attained. And in verse 15, he calls this maturity. This idea that living in this way is to live a mature Christian life. Now, what does that mean, to live up to what we have attained? What exactly is it that we have attained? Uh, Well, I can't get fully into it. We don't have time to unpack it fully. But if you read through chapter 3, essentially what Paul uh, is arguing is that we have attained uh, justification, before God, through Christ. As we trust in Jesus, there's this justification made available to us. And as a result of this justification that's been given, we ought to live like him, and we ought to live like Timothy, that we ought, to not, uh, we ought not to justify ourselves uh, with our accomplishments because of what Jesus has done. And I think this idea can be summarized uh, in verses 8 and 9, which aren't printed in your program, but let me just read those two verses to you because I think it helps give proper context. Uh, it says this, 8 and 9 says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, the work of Jesus for Paul is the foundation for all that he believes to be true, and therefore Jesus is the foundation for how he ought to live his life And as a result of the work of Jesus, there's now a responsibility that he has to live up to what he has attained. This is important to, to understand that from the Christian perspective, one of the things that Jesus has accomplished for the Christian is that he lived a perfectly sinless and moral life, a completely God honoring life, because we could not do so. And so he lives that life for us on our behalf. But here's the rub. Though he lived that life perfectly for our salvation, as a result of what he has done, he now calls us to live lives that live up to what he has accomplished. Not for our salvation, but in response to it. While we... Uh, while we, are, we ought not to live in certain ways to merit God's favor, we are to live in certain ways because of God's favor shown to us in Jesus. This is basic to the gospel message. 
which means that the commands that God gives us, we ought to pay attention to. This is important that we start here because we can't miss the fact that from the biblical perspective, there are right and wrong ways to live. Christianity is not a moral system of rules and commands. However, Christianity does have a moral system, a moral uh, system comprised of rules and commands, and these commands are not suggestions. Christian theology believes that the Bible is the very word of God and therefore obligatory. And so Paul makes clear that the right way to live is in response to the work of Jesus by obeying his commands. So the things that Jesus affirms, the Christian must affirm. The commands that Jesus gives, the Christian are expected to obey. That the way that Jesus lives becomes the basis for how the Christian ought to live. You know, that motto that picked up some traction in the 90s, what would Jesus do, has some grounding in this point. Did anybody else have the little wristband to remind themselves of that? No, just me? Totally cool. But maturity then, this life of maturity that Paul is describing, is when one can say this, that Jesus has done much for me, therefore I will obey his commands. This is what Christian maturity looks like. And there are so many different ways that we could unpack that, too many uh, for us to look at tonight. However, let's just consider two commands. Uh, The two commands that Jesus considers to be the most important of commands, uh, they are this. Jesus says that the greatest command is for us to love God with our whole selves and also like it that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So my question for myself and for all of us here what is the extent to which we do such things? You know, are we striving to love God with our whole lives? Are we striving to love others the way that we would love ourselves? I know that we might not do that perfectly, but is that even something we desire? Is it even something that we long for as a result of what Jesus has accomplished for us? Because if it is, this is the path of Christian maturity. However, Paul doesn't just stop there by giving us what the Christian life of maturity looks like. Uh, He goes on in verses 18 and 19, and he he contrasts Christian maturity with a life uh, without obligation to God's command. And this is what Paul calls in uh, verse 19, he says that this is what leads to destruction. So let's take a look at that life of destruction. Um, In in verse 19, Paul gives us essentially a profile of one who rejects God's commands. uh, And it ultimately leads to destruction. Look at at 19. It says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Therefore, I'm sorry, their mind is set on earthly things. Now, most commentators, uh, when they look at this passage, um, they believe that what Paul is referencing here is that there were people who pretended to be Christians or thought themselves to be Christians, 
and yet rejected what it meant to be a people living in response to the cross of Christ. Uh, They were people who claimed the name of Jesus, yet did not accept him as Lord over their lives. They did not want to live uh, in a way that showed gratitude to Christ's sacrifice, but rather they were more concerned with earthly pleasures and glory. One commentator put it like this, that instead of accepting a life-denying, a self-denying, sorry, self-denying way of discipleship uh, or following Jesus, that they made their physical desires their God, boasted in what was in fact shameful, and set their minds on earthly things. I mean, consider this, this profile that Paul's laying out here. I mean, first he says that their God is their stomach. It's kind of a weird, uh, weird statement. What exactly does that mean? Well, Again, commentators would say that there's two ways that we can look at that. On the one hand, uh, Paul is certainly addressing those who actually believed that their diet was uh, a way in which they could find salvation. And so he's rejecting that idea. But another sense, Paul is using this to describe those who had their minds on physical pleasures and unrestrained gluttony. Uh, Then he goes on. To say that they, their glory is in their shame. The idea being that instead of giving glory to God, they heaped praise upon themselves. And ironically, they prided in the very things that they should have been ashamed of. And then finally he says that their mind is on earthly things. The idea being that the greatest good one can experience is in the pleasures and achievements of life. And Paul says that all of this leads to destruction. Now, for some, that might seem really harsh. Those might seem like harsh words from Paul, because essentially what Paul is saying is this. Either you can live in response to the work of Jesus by obeying his commands, or you can live a life of destruction and again, while that might sound harsh, you've got to consider the full scope of what Paul is saying here in chapter 3. I mean, consider this. So when, when we talk about God's commands, his rules, his laws, uh, I think there's essentially two t- tendencies that we'll have uh, when we approach these laws. Paul addresses both of them through chapter 3. Uh, the two ways being this. So on the one extreme, you have what we call legalists. Uh, And legalists would be those who tie their salvation to their morality. There's this implicit and sometimes even explicit uh, belief that God's salvific favor depends on my adherence to the law. And Paul rejects that idea in the first half of chapter 3. But then on the other extreme, you have what we would consider licentiousness. Uh, which is essentially the belief that God is so gracious and loving that he gives license to us to live as we desire. Now, the licentious side of things, uh, I actually think resonates a lot in modern day. It's kind of a modern day mantra, especially in a city like New York. The idea that, you know, it's really about to each his own, Do what you think is best for you. Follow your heart. Go with your feelings. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. I mean, these are incredibly pervasive ideas today. However, it's it's worth stopping and addressing that way of thinking 
Because there actually are uh, many, both religious and non-religious, who would argue that the modern-day worldview is actually kind of incoherent. Uh, Let me explain to you what I mean by that. So we can't possibly affirm everyone's right to live as they desire and act in ways that they think are best for them. I mean, I do realize that within certain boundaries, sure, that might work and be okay for a little while. However, unless there are moral absolutes rooted in objective truth, there's no basis for claiming that anyone ought to have the right to live in any particular way. And whether you're a Christian or not, I think it's fair to say that we all believe that there is a particular way that we ought to live, a way that is best. And we're all vying for influence to try to present our belief system. However, the question has to be asked, on what basis do we assert our system of belief to be best? If it's rooted in our own sense of morality, then who is to say that another person's sense of morality is not just as valid? And we can debate the validity of one's faith foundations. However, let us not deceive ourselves into believing that our sense of right and wrong can ever be rooted in our internal, individual sense of it. And what Paul is arguing here, that this self-appointed morality, this licentiousness, leads to destruction because it's unbridled. I mean, we can convince ourselves that anything is okay. Now, I will say, it's worth noting, that you don't have to believe in God to live a moral life. Those who don't believe in God can certainly live very moral lives. But what we can't do is then insist that other people ought to live the same way that we do. Because when we have no obligation to God and his ways, when we feel no sense uh, of obligation to God's commands, we're essentially making ourselves God, making these decisions on our own. And Paul is saying when we live in that way, it leads to destruction. But why? Why does that way of thinking and that way of living lead to destruction? Well, Paul actually gives us the reason as to why he thinks it does. Uh, And I will say that for some, Paul's reason might be a little bit jarring. Um, But to the extent that we are consumed by and distracted by the pleasures of this world, the acquiring of power and praise, um, all while boasting in them, all while rejecting God's commands, is the extent to which we live, as verse 18 says, as enemies of the cross of Christ. When we don't live the life of maturity that Paul describes, we are actually living as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why is that? Well, think about it. If uh, Jesus, if what the Bible says about Jesus, specifically that he is the way of salvation, the only way to salvation— then to reject Jesus is to reject salvation. And by rejecting Jesus, by rejecting salvation, that will ultimately lead to destruction. This is Paul's entire point. And so, if that be true, and if this way of destruction is something we would like to resist, then how do we go about doing that? How do we resist it? 
Uh, well, the answer to that question is simple. The application is not. But essentially, it's this. If we do not want a life marked by destruction, then that means we must be living a life marked by discipline. The difference between one who lives a life of maturity and one who lives a life of destruction is discipline. Look at the passage. Let me show you what I mean. So all throughout this passage, you'll notice that Paul, uh, over and over again, is using uh, various action phrases. So uh, in verse 14, he says that we are to press on. In verse 15, he says that we ought to take such a view, right, so that we should uh, have a certain way of thinking. Uh, verse 16 says that we ought to live up to. Uh, verse 17 says that we are to follow uh, it, this example, that there are models that we ought to live um, in to model our lives after these that have gone before us. All of these action phrases give us this life marked by discipline. Right? Things that we ought to be doing. In other words, the difference between living this life of maturity and living as an enemy of the cross is learning to live a life of discipline. Now I know for some of us here, as I say that, you're thinking, yay! discipline. How exciting. But we know this to be true, that any good pursuit requires discipline. I mean, it's the defining characteristic of maturity. And this is uh, another, another thing here that we can see in this passage. Uh, it's a bit of a side note, but it's an important side note, is that in verse 17, Paul also makes it clear that as we pursue this life of discipline, that we actually aren't supposed to be doing it alone. I mean, look at verse 17. It says that we are to join together in following my example. Now, consider what he's saying. First, he's saying join together, meaning that we ought to be on this road of discipline with other people, peers walking alongside each other. And then he says, follow my example, which means that there ought to be this mentorship that's taking place, right? One that has gone before and that can now teach others how to also do the same. Um, all of this striving for this life of discipline ought to be happening with people all around us. God never intended for us to live outside of community, and that's a completely different sermon, but we need each other. It's important for us to know that and remember that. Okay, but with all that said, here's the problem. Uh, I don't know about you, so I'll just speak for myself, but I know that I do not live this life of discipline the way that I should all the time. And no matter how hard I try, I know that I will never completely and fully live in the ways that God desires me to live. I will fail. I mean, even Paul, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote the passage that we are reading right now, famously wrote in uh, Romans 7, he said this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I hate. But what I hate, I do. Now, I don't know about you, but that certainly resonates with me. I mean, think about all the ways, practically, that we so often fail. Particularly ways that uh, sound a lot like this life of destruction that Paul lays out. 
I mean, think about the, the pleasures and the comforts of this world. I mean, why are we so prone to destructive behavior and excess? Well, it's because what verse 18 tells us, that our minds are so fixed on the here and now, and the comforts and the pleasures of the here and now. I mean, why do we overwork? It's because our minds are so fixed on temporal glories of today. You know, in relationships, you know, why can some never seem to experience joy in their singleness? Why are so many marriages fractured? It's because so often our minds are so firmly set and fixed on believing that anyone in this world is going to be able to fulfill us. I mean, we're constantly falling into these patterns. So many problems in life come because our minds are so set on earthly things. So, with all of that said then, where, where's the hope? What do we do with that? If we're called to live a life of maturity, if we're called to live a life of discipline, but we know that we can never actually do that, well, where does this hope come when our minds are always falling into the trap of being set on earthly things, when we're constantly breaking God's laws and commands? What hope can we have in striving for discipline and maturity? Well, Paul gives us that hope, and he gives it to us by helping us see the hope of a life to come. Uh, Paul gives us this hope in verses uh, 20 and 21. Let me read this to you. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Do you know what that means? It means that there is a life coming that will be marked by complete and total restoration. That there is a life that is coming where all the allures of destruction will be defeated. And that life will be ushered in by the power of Christ himself. And my wife... Angela, she was reading uh, those two verses, um, she was saying how much it reminded her of the climactic uh, scene in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Uh, so in that scene, if you know the story, uh, the evil white witch and her army is battling the army of Aslan, the mighty lion and king of Narnia. And all hope seems to be lost um, because Aslan, Aslan's army thinks he's dead. And so in a lot of ways, they're fighting and they're striving without hope. However, uh, spoil, spoiler alert on a 70-year-old on book, uh, unknown to this army, Aslan's actually not dead. Because he has risen from the dead. And he is now on his way to meet them on the battlefield. And as he approaches the battlefield with Lucy on his back, he sees all of the death and all of the destruction that has occurred. But when he arrives to the battlefield, it says that he roared a roar that shook all of Narnia. That Aslan comes with power. And with that power, 
he gallops in and he defeats the white witch, defeats her army, and secures victory for his people. This, of course, however, is but a mere picture of another risen coming king that we see in Revelation 19 who gallops in, a warrior Jesus riding on a white horse who returns with a roar that will shake the cosmos. Jesus coming with power. And do you know who he comes for? Do you know whom he accomplishes this victory for? It's for his people. Who Paul called, in verse 20, he says, his people who are citizens of heaven. Now, I find that amazing. That when we trust in Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. I mean, note that it doesn't say that our citizenship will one day be in heaven. Rather, it says that our citizenship is in heaven, like right now, presently, as we trust in Jesus. So that now as we strive in this life, we do not strive without hope, and we don't strive as those trying to attain heaven. No, no, no. Rather, we strive as those whose citizenship has been secured in heaven by Jesus, and now we await the coming of our conquering king, knowing that everything we so often chase in this life is but a mere shadow of the fullness of life that is to come for those who have been made citizens of heaven by trusting in Jesus. And so if you're here today, and you're a Christian, I ask you, do you see your coming king? Do you realize that you are a citizen of heaven right now? And if you do, then live a life of maturity. Live a life in response to Christ's work for you. Strive to obey, all while waiting for your coming king. If you're not a Christian, and you wouldn't identify yourself as such, I want you to know that this citizenship Christ offers to you. He offers you this hope of complete and full joy when he comes to conquer evil and destruction. So trust in him. For all of us, trust in him, our coming king. Let's pray. Father, you are God, and as such, you see us down to the very bottom. You know all of the darkness that is within us. You know us better than we even know ourselves. And out of your mercy, out of your grace, you have come in the person and work of Jesus to deal with the darkness within us. For you knew that we could not live a life worthy of your holiness and your perfection. And so Jesus comes and he lives that life for us. But now as a result, you do now call us to live in response to what Jesus has done. And you have given us your spirit to empower us to do so. So God, we do ask 
that you would help us live this life of maturity, to live this life that honors you, but that you would also help us to remember that we don't strive to do so as those who are trying to attain heaven, but rather we do so as those whose citizenship has been secured by what Jesus has done. And it's to this hope that we cling that one day our king will come with power to defeat evil and destruction that we might spend an eternity with him. We thank you for how you have made all this possible. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.